0: This is the History of the World Podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And this is the History of the World Podcast, unscripted. Welcome once again to another unscripted episode of the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler, and uh, we're promoting another unscripted episode just purely because we are taking a short break before venturing into the Roman Empire. So if you remember last time uh, we published a full episode, it was about the life of Julius Caesar. We actually need to Find out what happened after the death of Julius Caesar. It's a fascinating period in Roman history and we'll look forward to presenting that to you. I believe it will be next week, so it's only been a short break, thankfully. But in that uh, short break, we had the wonderful opportunity to explore the seven wonders of the ancient world last week. And this week... I've decided to talk briefly about something that one of our patrons um, inquired about. So if you have not uh, signed up to be a patron of the History of the World podcast, you can do it. You can go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and go along to patron and become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati for as little as $1 a month. Now, anyone who accrues $10 in overall donations, you don't have to do that in a monthly donation, it can be accrued over a number of months, they earn the right to ask a question of the History of the World podcast. And we are happy to answer those questions, or at least attempt to answer them. We don't know the answer to everything, but um, sometimes um, the questions are great discussion points, and I feel sure that this week is absolutely no exception. So I'm going to refer to an email that I received from a gentleman who's a member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati called Adam Hosier and he wrote to me saying my question is this in your prehistory volume as well as the ancient world volume you mention in a few places about the practice of humans drilling into each other's heads in order to perform pain relief or as a cure for other ailments and mental disturbances. This seems not only an extremely dangerous process with prehistoric techniques, but also surely totally ineffective given prehistorical understanding of the brain. So is there actually any evidence of this kind of procedure ever resulting in any kind of benefit? And if not, then how come humans continue to trial such a clearly and demonstrably dangerous yet ineffective procedure as opening each other's skulls open to skim parts of the brain or something. Because while I can see how other ancient cures, ointments and treatments might evolve over time with trial and error, the trial and error option isn't really an option when error equals death. So this is one part of our early history that I just can't get my head around. Thanks, Adam. So Adam is actually referring to something called trepanning, which is when uh, you put a hole in your skull uh, for whatever reason. Now, There is a lot of evidence for this, so we definitely know it was going on. And uh, we're going to explore that a little bit this week. So, today's episode, we're going to be looking at trepanning. Now, I was fortunate enough to find an article from the Washington Post, written in 1998, and uh, it's uh, written by a gentleman called Michael Colton. And he's talking about another gentleman called Peter Halverson. And uh, the article reads, Peter Halverson's bald, freckled scalp glistens in the warm afternoon sun and from certain angles you don't even notice the dent. It's just above his forehead, near where the hairline would be if Halverson still had a hairline. The skin around the small indentation brightly reflects the sunlight, while the middle remains dark in the shadow. Peter Halverson has a hole in his head. It's three eighths of an inch wide, though it may have slightly expanded since 1972, when in a small room in Holland, he used an injection of anesthetic, a scalpel, four drill bits, and an electric power drill controlled by his foot to make the hole. He was suffering from depression and decided this would bring him happiness permanently. And on this day, Halverson seems quite happy. Ignoring the hordes of gnats, he circles the firs, pines and spruces on his 40-acre tree farm with his groundhog-chasing dogs, Duke and Dodger, and his friend, Tom Wargo, who's a little envious of Halverson. Wargo wants a hole in his head too. He wants to undergo tripanation, an ancient procedure that involves geezers of blood and the removal of a chunk of one's skull. The skin heals but leaves a visible depression on one's dome. Then I found another article, um, this one is from, a, uh, it's from the website The National Centre for Biotechnology Information and this article says doctors have warned about the dangers of trypanning after the launch of several websites promoting the do-it-yourself surgery and the case of a Gloucestershire woman who drilled a two centimetre diameter hole in her skull. Concern has been expressed about the growing interest in trepanning for several conditions including depression and the chronic fatigue syndrome. Concern is also growing about the increasing promotion of trepanning including videos, t-shirts and a virtual trepanning shopping mall on the internet. There are lots of good reasons for making a hole in someone's head and in neurosurgeon's hands it is not a risky procedure but for someone doing it themselves the risks are huge says Lawrence Watkins, consultant neurosurgeon at the Institute of Neurology, London. Patients risk among other things contracting an infection or damaging the surface of the cortex so this sort of relates back to the original question that was posed by Adam Hosier, which was why on earth would people undertake such a risky procedure when the outcome was very likely to be devastating? And how do we historically justify it? So what we need to do is we have to look for historical instances of trypanning, and what we can uh, what we can say for sure is that trypanation has been going on right up until the modern day, as proved by the case of Peter Halverson and the case of this young lady called Heather Perry who Uh, went to the United States and done a do-it-yourself surgery. So this now leads me to another article, and I'm going to just briefly read that now. It's uh, written by Kirsten Forsett and uh, it's on the website uh, mentalfloss.com. And it reads uh, that during the 1860s, A United States diplomat called E.G. Squire travelled to Cusco, Peru. While visiting the home of a wealthy woman who collected antiquities, he was shown an ancient skull. Discovered in an ancient Inca cemetery in the valley of Yucca, the skull predated, oh, the skull, sorry, I beg your pardon, the skull dated to pre-Columbian times and had a large rectangle-shaped uh, hole near its top front. Squire, and a well-educated polymath whose areas of expertise also included archaeology and Latin American culture, was immediately intrigued. So in 1865, Squire brought the skull to New York where he presented it to the members of the New York Academy of Medicine. Squire believed that the skull was clear evidence that Peru's ancient people had performed prehistoric brain surgery. The holes cross-hatched outlines were the work of a human hand. Squire noted that they were most likely made with a burin, a tool used by engravers on wood and metal. Even more shockingly, he observed that the skull showed signs of healing, meaning the patient had survived the procedure for at least one to two weeks before they died. So this tends to support Adam's original email regarding trepanation where he states that he believes that it's such a dangerous procedure that why on earth would anyone consider doing it? So I'm going to investigate this further and look at an article written for BBC Earth And it was written by a gentleman called Robin Wiley in 2016. So what Robin's attempted to do is summarise trepanation as a a study, as as an overview, and and this is what he writes: he he puts the earliest clear evidence of trepanation dates to approximately seven thousand years ago, and it was practiced in places such uh, places as diverse as ancient Greece, North and South America. Africa, Polynesia, and the Far East. So this this really does support what Adam has has put in his email. Just saying, like you know, the dangers are so real, to, and and so you know, if we're just ultimately so surprised that someone has survived for a week or two after the after this this surgery, then why on earth would people even do it? Um. People probably developed the practice independently in, seven, in several locations. This is what Robin Wiley writes. Trepanation had been abandoned by most cultures by the end of the Middle Ages, but the practice was still being carried out in a few isolated parts of Africa and Polynesia until the early 1900s. Um, since the... First scientific studies of trepanation were published in the 19th century. Scholars have continued to argue that ancient humans sometimes performed trepanation to allow the passage of spirits into and out of the body or as part of an initiation rite. However, convincing evidence is hard to come by. It is almost impossible to completely rule out the possibility that a trepanation was carried out for medical reasons because some brain conditions leave no trace on the skull so this is interesting because what we're what we're effectively saying is that there there could be two reasons for trepanation because the the actual act of trepanation was so far and wide that it had to be independently um, you know it had to have developed independently in different areas of the world so diverse was the range of these Uh, uh, Trepanned skulls. And um, so we're speculating that it could have happened for different reasons. Firstly, there have been skulls recovered that have shown um, brain trauma. And it appears logical to assume that the trepanation has been uh, a a result of trying to alleviate pain in the head. But secondly... We're also speculating here that the, the act of trepanation was taking place because of some kind of ritual. So there was a reason to do it. There was, there was a ritual reason. And we go on now to uh, further explore this article by Robin. Now Robin writes of an archeo- archaeological Discovery. The story begins in 1997. Archaeologists were excavating a prehistoric burial site close to the city of Rostov on Don in the far south of Russia, near the northern reaches of the Black Sea. The site contained the skeletal remains of 35 humans distributed among 20 separate graves. Based on the style of the burials, the, archeolog- the archaeologists knew that they dated between approximately 5000 and 3000 BCE, a period known as the Chalcolithic or Copper Age. One of the graves contained the skeletons of five adults, two women and three men, together with an infant aged between one and two years and a girl in her mid-teens. Finding multiple skeletons in the same prehistoric grave is not particularly unusual, but what has been done to their skulls was the two women, two of the men and the teenage girl, had all been trepanned. Each of their skulls contained a single hole, several centimetres wide, and roughly ellipsoidal in shape, with signs of scraping around the edges. The skull of the third man contained a depression, which also showed evidence of having been carved, but not an actual hole. Only the infant skull, was unblemished. So as if we've got a family here that have been buried and all of them have got trepanned skulls and this may point us more towards a ritual thing and um, the article goes on to say that ultimately uh, eight unusual skulls all clustered in a small region of southern Russia and potentially all of the same age. Uh, were discovered, and, and then a decade later, even more uh, were discovered. So so there was a continuous discovery of these Trepan skulls all around the, t- the same age and all around ge- the same geographical region. So this points us towards this as um, some kind of ritual. However, we cannot discredit the fact that um, this uh, may have been done for medical reasons, it may just have been more common in this area of the world and so it's very inconclusive, but interesting to speculate nonetheless, and that's what we as historians and um, you know amateur scientists um, endeavor to do and uh, the experts will often um, look at the possible answers and and wait to see if their peers accept it as uh, reasonable and that's when we tend to start believing it as a society and, and start um, inserting it into our mainstream historical narrative. But with this, we we really don't have a lot to go on, so it's so speculative. So we have to sort of discuss it as we are doing today. So I'm now going to go back to Kirsten Forsett's article uh, for mental floss in uh, 2016. And um, let's investigate this a little bit further, the, the risks... Trepanation was performed on young and old, male and female. In many instances, the prehistoric patients had lived for years after the surgery. So this is something different now. We can say that um, the the wound can heal and um, patients can live for years afterwards. According to writings by Charles Gross, a professor of neuroscience at Princeton University, estimates for survival range from 50... To 90%. However, in most cases, uh, in many cases, I should say, the surgeon's motive for performing trepanation remains unclear. This is something we've also established. John Verano, a professor of anthropology at Tulane University, who studies trepanation in Peru, tells Mental Floss he's convinced that in Peru, the South Pacific, and many other parts of the world, trepanation began as a very practical treatment for head injuries. Say somebody has a head wound that's torn up their skull, you'd clean it out and remove little broken fragments and allow the brain to swell a little bit, which it does after injuries. So this is something that can be discovered by anybody. In some instances, trepan skulls show clear evidence of trauma, meaning that there must have been an underlying reason why the procedure was performed. However, archaeologists have also uncovered trepan skulls that don't show depressed fractures. Squire's famous skull, for instance, that didn't indicate any signs of a head wound. Skulls with multiple holes have also been unearthed, re- revealing that patients sometimes had and survived more than one surgery. According to Verano, modern eyewitness accounts from Africa and the South Pacific state that trepanation is still used to treat head wounds, headaches or pressure on the brain. In other parts of the world, it's thought that trepanation may have been used to release evil spirits or to treat insanity or epilepsy. But without any written record, we'll never quite know why these kinds of surgeries were performed in the absence of obvious injury. Individuals who underwent trepanation weren't administered anaesthesia. Did the procedure hurt? As Verano points out, there might have been, uh, they might have likely been unconscious during the uh, surgery if they had suffered a head wound, Uh, so naturally unconscious due to the injury. Otherwise, they would have been awake. The scalp has a lot of nerves, so it hurts to cut your scalp, Verano says. It also bleeds a lot and then it stops, but the skull has very few nerves and the brain has. No nerves. So you can't actually feel it when someone is carrying out surgery to your brain. Well, certainly not um, fe- feeling what they're doing to your brain itself. So, um, But ne- that that is still a very painful procedure. Um, Verano also points out that ancient tripanas weren't cutting through the brain's dura matter. If they did, the patient would have gotten meningitis and died. So this is where would the fine line between um, cutting through someone's skull and then just causing them irreversible damage or, or death. Um, so going forward from that, what we can take from that is that um, in some cases, you know, the patient would have been either injured in or in so much pain that such surgery would have been the only sensible solution under the circumstances. So this is where we really come to. So so it is possible that there are places in the world where um, trepanation was carried out as a ritual. There might have been places in the world where trepanation was uh, carried out due to head injury. It's highly unlikely that anyone uh, was trepanned for no apparent reason. So I think this goes back to Adam's original question now. About trepanning, the dangers of trepanning. Um, if you, if you consider that someone may have had considerable migraines, um, to the point where they just felt like they just didn't want to be alive anymore, then they might have implored someone to trepan their head, um, in order to alleviate the pain. And then going on from that, we go more into the spiritual side of things that if someone had epilepsy, it might have been that in the prehistoric world that it would have seemed sensible for someone to trepan the skull, or that they, the, the only solution might have been um, to trepan the skull in order to allow these bad spirits that were causing uh, the epilepsy or, or similar condition to manifest in that particular human being. So, really, it comes down to a lack of knowledge. Um, Anyone who trepanned someone's skull might have had, um, might have been an expert in it, they might have done it many times as, as, as it could have happened in, in Russia, you know, in those, uh, in those discovered skulls in Russia. It could have been that someone had expert knowledge of how to do it and, and a technique that would have lessened the risk, but still the risk was there. This is really my conclusion about trepanation, is that um, there could be a number of reasons why it happened. Um, It would have been equally dangerous wherever you would have gone in the world, but in some cases where it felt like death was inevitable or whether it felt like um, the individual themselves was displaying signs of madness that um, frightened peers in the population who believed that the individual was worth saving then trepanation was certainly an option and certainly something on the table. Um, the risk of death may have been um, high, but it would have been worth the risk if that individual was thought to have been a danger to other people or if that individual was thought to have been going to die anyway. Um fact of the matter is that um, we know that um, more people survived the surgery, or it seems as though more people survived the surgery than didn't, and um, therefore that would have... uh, If if there was that kind of knowledge within a society, um, then certainly trepanation would have been worthwhile. And um, obviously um, I wouldn't recommend anyone does it at home. Um, Certainly... Uh, this story of this lady who um, decided to follow Peter Halverson's advice and um, and uh, to trepan her own skull in, in recent times, um, I, I don't think sounds like a very good idea to me. Certainly, if you've got any medical issue, you should go and see a doctor if you're fortunate enough to be able to live somewhere where you can do that. Heather Perry. 29-year-old graduate from Gloucester went to the United States to carry out the do-it-yourself surgery after contacting one of the Trepanning websites run by self styled expert, Peter Helverson. Her parents alerted the FBI, but they were unable to stop her. Miss Perry, who said that she began suffering with the chronic fatigue syndrome last year, said that it was something she had wanted to do for some time. I felt the effects immediately. I generally feel better, and there is more mental clarity. I hope you enjoyed that little study of trepanation, and um, that was uh, in response to an email sent in by Adam Hosier who um, who had a amount of the uh, the amount of money that is required to ask a question and have it answered during a podcast episode. But normally we would uh, insert it at the end of the episode and it would take no longer than 10 minutes. But I thought the the subject matter was quite fascinating and, and I fancied the challenge of uh, finding a few articles and comparing them to each other. So um, obviously um, it shouldn't be taken as a as any kind of expert study, it really was a casual study by me. And um, I'm sure that there are many, many other articles out there that can shed much more light on the subject of trepanation than I have done today. But uh, if it entertained you, if it was interesting, then it's done its job. I received uh, a message this week from um, a gentleman called Derek Moore. Who um we got, like, I won't go into all the detail of the message because he did get quite deep into it and, and I appreciate it, and it was very interesting indeed. But he was um he, he, he basically the, the essence of the email is um have dug into the um he was asking me if I've dug into the Irish annals much and uh, they document the Irish as being Sidian, Phoenician Gadelians descended from the Magog. Freemasonic law. And manuscripts take the Irish annals at face value and repeat their claims, saying masonry is founded by the Phoenicians that invaded Ireland in the Milesian conquest. Um, do you know? I mean, it's, this is tricky because it's uh, like generally speaking, as someone who um relays information, I very much rely on the mainstream acceptance um of things to be able to put forward my stories um as I don't work directly in the field so um it's interesting for me what the what the academic experts say in relation to their studies of this and um for me, I don't really know a lot about it. Certainly there is a connection between the Scythians and the Irish. If you look at potentially the, the origins of Celtic cultures, maybe being linked to Scythians because of the Indo-European language link and then migrating over to Ireland. Um, but however, um, if we look at other cultures as such as the ones mentioned, um, like Phoenicians, um, Egyptians, even, um, Milesians, um we we have to accept that these people were uh were you know they were they were interested in conquest of lands for their own wealth and they the they would have been looking to the british Isles as trade links you know maritime trade links um is the most obvious answer in terms of the original um the original bringing Ireland and the British Isles into the the modern world as we knew it, which was centered around the Mediterranean, and uh, so it's very interesting to speculate that Irish origins may have been linked in that way to anyone who's invading that land, who wanted to be an envoy or a you know, or, or an ambass- ambassador for their an ambassador for their own land, or, or wanted to set up. Um, Maybe some kind of ancient embassy, or or, or, of, or something of the likes, and it, and it may have made sense if they wanted supremacy of of that land, of that foreign land, to then invent an origin myth, and and so you could have uh, claimed descent from anything, as long as people started believing you, then it would uh, it would snowball into something that might be written in the annals. But then, of course, um, that. Is that shouldn't be taken as my way of being completely cynical about origin myths. They obviously come from somewhere, and uh, there might have been some kind of genuine, um, you know, link that we are yet to discover. So interesting. Thank you, Derek. So next week, we're going to get back into the proper episodes, you'll be pleased to know. And uh, the we need to pick up the Roman story where we left it off at the death of Julius Caesar. We need to now discover what happened with Mark Antony and Cicero, all the men that were left behind. And um, also uh, Brutus and Cassius, who were the main perpetrators of the liberators who murdered Julius Caesar in the Senate on the Ides of March. So we need to get back to that story and find out exactly what happened next. What impact did Caesar's death have on the Roman Republic? And uh, we'll look forward to that one next week. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, um, this episode was brought to you thanks to the message and the kind donations made by... Uh, Adam Hosier of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And if you want to become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, go along to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly donation. It all really helps the quality of the podcast. I can then go out and invest in materials that make the podcast much better. We can triangulate a lot more information and bring you a much more comprehensive story. And um, we should owe thanks to those new members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati this week, Angelo Hiras and Justine. Both have become members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. I thank you both. Anyway, that's all for this week. Next week, back to the Roman story, what happened after Julius Caesar's death. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Enjoy your week and uh, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.